Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon podcast from the First United Methodist Church of Parable. Today there are two scripture lessons there in your bulletin. Also on the screen we'll read first from Romans chapter 3 and then from John chapter 5. So I invite you to follow along uh, however you want to read it in your own Bible or on the screen or on the page there in front of you. Hear these words of scripture. But now irrespective of the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by His blood, effective through faith. He did this to show His righteousness because His divine forbearance. He had passed over sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that He Himself is righteous and that He justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Next, from the Gospel of John, chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. After this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool called in Hebrew Bethsatha, which has five porticos. In these lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While I'm making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, Stand up, take your mat, and walk. And at once the man was made well. He took up his mat, and he began to walk. May God bless our reading of the Holy Scriptures, and let us say together, Amen. Amen. Join me in a spirit of prayer. Holy God, we pray with thanksgiving in our hearts today as we gather for worship in this season of Lent. We give thanks that your spirit is already here among us, present with us, as we share in song and fellowship, as we make our gifts, and as we give attention to the holy and sacred scriptures. We pray now, God, that you would speak through the scriptures, that you would speak in this moment, perhaps through my words, that your spirit would speak to our spirits, lifting us up, knitting us together, gathering us in your divine communion once more. These things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of the biggest time wasters in my life, like many of yours, is scrolling through social media, and often I get distracted by something like this you see on the screen here. There are these wonderful videos on Facebook or on Instagram or other places of people cleaning cars. Now, I know what you're thinking, and that sounds pretty mundane, but there's something about it. It's just sort of intoxicating. It's interesting. They take an old car out of a garage or out of a barn, and they do this hyperspeed video where they, they clean it up, they power wash it, they polish it, they wax it, and they make this old, cruddy-looking car look new again. Or they take a farm truck, that's something maybe we relate to a little bit more, a farm truck that's been used all, all summer and it's dirty and dusty and they take it into a detail shop and they get into every crevice and corner in the interior and it leaves that shop looking brand new. I don't 
know what it is about these videos, but man, when one comes up on my phone, I can't help but watch it. It is so encouraging, the thought of something gross and nasty, something that looks like it's been lost, being given new life. We are in that season ourselves here. You may be a regular in washing your car. Maybe you're someone who goes every week or every month. I like to keep my car clean, my truck clean, but also, right, it might rain tomorrow or it might rain the next day, so why bother? Or when is the the pollen going to start together and is there any way we can stay ahead of that? I'll confess to you that that our cars are usually in the need of cleaning, not only on the outside, but on the inside, that that good detailed cleaning where you vacuum and dust and polish. I heard a joke a few weeks ago, one one gentleman said, the the inspiration for trail mix comes from what you find behind children's car seats, right? Um, And I've experienced that myself, right? I want to suggest to you a little bit of an image to begin today's sermon. Of all the car wash options we have, there are a few that come to mind. One, of course, that we use most often is the drive-through car wash, maybe the touchless car wash or even the one with the brush. Other car washes include where you can get out and use the foaming brush yourself and you can spray it off yourself. Or, of course, you may be the sort of person who prefers to wash your car in the driveway uh, with a bucket of suds. You prefer to get your floor mats out and clean them there at home. Every week we worship, every week that we come to church, we share in some sort of prayer of confession. We confess our sins. One way we do that is in the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer says, right, forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive others. Chase usually includes a line around confession in his pastoral prayer, right? Forgive us of where we failed, where we've fallen short. And so every week we come to worship, we ask God to forgive us of our sins, and then we continue on with the worship service, and then we continue on with our week. I want to suggest to you that, that that weekly prayer of confession is a little bit like the drive-through car wash, right? Uh, we don't have time to get out and do a lot of work. This isn't going to be a detailed cleaning. We just need to knock the dust off, and we're going to keep on going because we're so busy. On the other hand, we're now in the season of Lent, marked by our purple pyramids, the purple on the cross behind us. The season of Lent is 40 days, preparing us to celebrate Easter. And in these 40 days, instead of confession and pardon being something that we just breeze through on the way to the next step, in these 40 days, confession and pardon are front and center. In these 40 days, we are asking and searching and hoping. In these 40 days, we are submitting ourselves to a full, detailed cleaning Not just the drive-through car wash, but the kind where you take the floor mats out and you vacuum and you wax and you polish and you try to get every little bit of dirt and crumbs. In these 40 days, we're hoping that we could not just be cleansed a little, but that we could be healed and made whole and transformed so that when we get to Easter, we can have this grand celebration. Christ is risen and we have experienced the very joy of that salvation in our own lives. A pastor friend of mine reminded me a few weeks ago of the story of the healings that have taken place in Lourdes, France. This is a small community in the Pyrenees Mountains. You can see here a contemporary picture. It begins back in the 1850s. A young girl named Bernadette that was there with her friends. This is in a rural area. They're collecting sticks for the family fire back home. They're in this cavernous creek, this muddy hole, for lack of a better description, where this young girl has a spiritual vision. She sees a woman glowing up above her. Bernadette. 
She returns a few times with her friends, again, a rural area, just a muddy hole in the ground, and she continues to have this spiritual vision. She continues to see, in this case, the Virgin Mary. She tells other people about what she has seen, and so they come to inspect themselves. And so it became the case that people would return to this place in Lourdes, France, this tiny mud hole, this, this grotto. They would return there to pray in hopes of experiencing some spiritual blessing, if not healing itself. So from the 1850s to now, some 5 million people a year, 5 million people a year, travel to Lourdes, France to touch the water, to drink the water, to experience the sort of healing. There have been 66 identified healings, miraculous healings, testified to, inspected by the Roman Catholic Church. And it's a remarkable scene. This is just one such picture. This looks kind of like some of the, the caverns we have in the Ozarks of Arkansas, right? It's just a little bit of water running through a cave at the bottom of the ground. Millions of people, sick and, and lame, those who are uh, handicapped in different ways, and they're coming there to, to receive a blessing. And often with the help of other people, right? Caregivers, friends, there are ushers and hosts. It's an incredible scene. I heard someone say who had been there before and had witnessed it, they, they were asked, well, did you see anything miraculous while you were there? And the individual who had been said, yeah, every day I saw something miraculous. And the person said, well, what was it? He said, well, every day there were tons of people there gathered and despite your, your race or your culture or your age or your background or your health condition, they were all gathered together with this deep need, this deep sense and this deep longing for hope and healing that maybe would be available to them in this particular place. And the way in which people gathered and the way in which people prayed together, that, that all the divisions and the nastiness of the world were put aside. And every day, it was a miracle to be there and to be among these people. If you can think about that image, you might think about some of our places in Arkansas that have had similar significance in history. Maybe not quite in the same way as categorized in this sense by the Roman Catholic Church, but, but Hot Springs, Arkansas, right? People traveled there for many generations to be in those hot springs, to be in that water, thinking that that water would provide them some healing, some comfort, or some care. Eureka Springs has a similar history, tradition, even Heber Springs to some degree. If you have those images in mind, maybe of Lourdes, maybe of even Hot Springs, Arkansas, then you can appreciate a little bit uh, what's going on here in John chapter 5, the pool of Bethesda. The pool of Bethesda was a, a gathering place in Jerusalem. This is a contemporary picture of where we believe it was. There, there in the lowest spot would have been the pool itself. It's a portico that, of course, required people to work their way around the outside to get in and to draw lower and lower. One description I read this week said that you could, you could imagine the Pool of Bethesda as sort of a, a battlefield hospital with people who are, are sick and lame with all sorts of conditions. Of course, it's a pre-modern time. There's no health care as we currently know it. There's no even accommodations as we experience them today. And so sick and lame people from all over the region are gathering near this pool in hopes that they might receive some sort of healing. Now, kind of like the hot springs that maybe you've observed here in Arkansas or maybe in other places out west, occasionally the water would, would boil up, right? It would come up from the surface and a pool would gather and expand. And so it was at that moment that people would rush to get down to the water. 
And being in the water would provide them healing, care, comfort that they couldn't achieve elsewhere. And so even just having that scene in mind is sort of a, a remarkable thing as we think about Jesus himself. We read today from John chapter 5, this is kind of continuing a previous story, and it says the next thing that Jesus did was he went up to Jerusalem for a religious festival, right? And so we would be thinking as he goes to Jerusalem, as he's there for a religious festival, that he would come to the temple and come to worship. But instead, the first thing that Jesus does as he returns to Jerusalem is goes to the, the first century hospital. The first century hospital. Jesus goes to walk among the, the lame and the sick and the ill. Presumably goes there out of concern for them, hoping to provide some support, maybe even some care and some healing. And so just kind of picture in your mind what a dramatic and confounding and difficult scene this is. How many sick people must have been there in the sort of spiritual aura about that pool at Bethesda? We're reading this book. Um, you have an option to read it yourself if you so choose. Many of the Sunday school classes are reading it. Tom uh, Berlin's Restored, Finding Redemption in Our Mess. Uh, this week is chapter 3. I'm trying to tie the sermons to the book a little bit uh, and do some of my own stuff as well. Uh, in chapter 3 of that book, I, I, I was uh, startled by the story that he shared. Some of you may know this story, uh, but I didn't. It was a little bit before my time. Uh, in chapter 3, he talks about how 7 million American children disappeared from 1986 to 1987. Right? Why was this so? Well, apparently, in 1986 and before, when you were filling out your individual tax forms each year, in terms of your dependents, all you had to write was their name. Right? All you had to write was their name. So in 1986, there were 77 million dependents claimed in the United States. What changed in 1987? Not only do you have to write their name, but you have to write their social security number. Right? So from 1986 to 1987, dependents, not only their name, but their social security. And so in 1987, how many dependents were claimed that year? 70 million, right? 7 million children disappeared from 1986 to 1987. Why was this so? Well, obviously, there was a good opportunity there for folks to claim more dependents than they actually had. Right, And so there were 7 million children that were previously claimed in, 18, in 1986 that were no longer claimed in 1987 because they had no social security number. Berlin offers this story as sort of an example of the dichotomy that we all experience within our own spirit. We want honesty and truthfulness to reign supreme in society. We, we want to elect people who are honest and truthful. We want to tell, tell our children, teach our children to be honest and truthful. We even want to be honest and truthful ourselves. We would all agree that honesty is a bedrock principle. We have to be honest with one another if we're going to function as a society. And yet, research shows that many of us will do a little bit of cheating when given the opportunity. Not just on our taxes, right? Other ways, if you're a golfer, you might kick the ball out of the brush and into the fairway while no one's looking, right? If you play cards with the family over the holidays, you might lean over and take a peek at someone's hand when they're not paying attention. Grab a few extra dollars from the Monopoly bank while everyone else is away from the table, right? You know the drill. In fact, there's a lot of research that shows that most of us, if we knew we would not get caught, that most of us would cheat in small ways, if we could get ahead. 
As I was reading Berlin's story, I was reminded of some other stuff I had read about dishonesty and cheating, particularly this guy named Dan Arely. He's done some research, along with others, around dishonesty and cheating. And part of the research uh, was uh, geared toward proving that people would be more honest if you simply asked them to do so, right? If you challenged people to be more honest, then they were more likely to do so. And so they designed a lot of experience, experiments to do this. They would have people take like a real simple math test, like addition and subtraction. You would take the test, and then you would destroy your test, and you would tell the, the provider uh, how many answers you got correct. And for every answer you got right, you got like a dollar, right? But the person who you told your answers to didn't actually see your test, right? So you could lie, right? You could grade yourself, and you could tell them you got more right than you got wrong. And what they did, the way they tested this was they had people fill out a, a promise at the beginning of the test, right? Before they began, I promise that I will do my best and I will tell the truth. Or they had them fill out a promise afterwards, right? I promise that I did my best and I told the truth. And they found through these results that people were more likely to tell the truth, about 30, 40% more likely to tell the truth if you simply asked them to do so, right? If you made them take a pledge, take a promise, take an oath at the beginning, right? And so Airly and his colleagues have set out to prove that people can be more honest if they're challenged to do so, but often when they're not challenged to do so, they tend to cheat and take advantage of the system. Now here's the real shocker in all this, okay? As I was reading about Airly in his book this week, and I was, I was reminded of, of how they did those uh, experiments and the data that they collected, I didn't know that a couple of years ago, 2020 and 2021, that this book itself and a lot of the data in the book had come under fire, that other social scientists, other university professors had tried to recreate some of the same data that Airely had presented in his book, and they couldn't do so, right? And what they concluded was that some of the data he had used to prove that people are often dishonest but can be honest, he had actually made up himself, right? Are you tracking the irony of that, right? So he's written a book, a couple of books, bestseller books. He's given a lot of lectures about what it means to be honest, about how to create a more honest society, about how to invite people to honesty when he himself maybe is not in being entirely honest, right? That's sort of like Berlin's story about the taxes, right? We want honesty, we want truthfulness, we want high character, high morals, and yet often behind the scenes, we ourselves, right, are not telling the whole truth when we're taking advantage of the systems and the opportunities that are before us. Today, as we read from John uh, chapter 5, we have this incredible story and this very piercing question. I have a preacher friend, Jeremy Troxler, who, who, who kind of frames the, the scene in, in this way. When we read Jesus come to this man in John chapter 5, uh, we, we don't know uh, the story behind the context here. We don't know why he's sick, what, what, what led him to be here, and what led him to be here for 38 years. And so when we read Jesus' piercing question, we're, we're a little bit caught off guard. Do you want to be made well? Well, on the surface, that's a, that's, a, that's a super obvious question. Of course he wants to be made well. He's been sick for 38 years. He's lying near this pool of healing. He's hoping that someone would help to get him in the water, though often people get in his way. And so there's a temptation to read Jesus' question and to assume the answer is sort of obvious. Obviously, he wants to be made well. Who among us wouldn't want to be made well? But if the answer is so obvious, then maybe we would, we would do well to think a little more about the question. 
Not as Jesus asked this question if the answer seems so obvious. Do you want to be made well? Most of our, um, there's research that shows this, about 80% of our health care costs in America, I want you to hear this clearly, 80% of our health care costs in America have to do with five different things. Uh, our diet, our exercise level, our stress level, and alcohol and smoking. Diet, exercise, stress, alcohol, and smoking account for about 80% of our health care costs in America. Now think about that, right? So 80% of the reasons that we go to the doctor are not for lack of information or lack of understanding. Right? Those are all five things that we can at least, to some degree, control. And so when we put our own health care data in the light of Jesus' question, that, that question resonates with us a little more deeply. Do you, do you want to be made well? There's other research around heart patients, around people who have to have heart surgeries, maybe stents or, or other sorts of uh, procedures with their heart. And, and oftentimes those surgeries are the result of lifestyle choices, diet and exercise, right? People are often told, right, if you don't change your lifestyle, if you don't change your diet or your exercise, the surgery we're doing is only going to be a temporary fix and you'll be back here soon. And the research shows that that's true for about 90% of the people. The people can receive a miraculous heart surgery, but they're unable to change their lifestyle choices that led to needing the surgery to begin with. So we might hear Jesus' question again, do you, do you want to be made well? There's other examples that extend just beyond our, our, our health, our bodies, right? Um, we, we have heard stories, we've seen movies, we've seen reports that, that many people who, who spend many years in, in prison and then they get out, maybe their sentence is over or they're able to leave on parole, that when they leave prison and they return to the free world, that they find that freedom overwhelming and paralyzing. And so in that, in that fear of freedom, they often end up doing things that send them back to prison. Recidivism, right? They end up back in prison because prison kind of becomes its own place of comfort and care. So we can hear Jesus again asking, do you really want to be made well? Something that happens to me a lot as a pastor, I can share this with you, I can confess to you, people will come to talk to me about their, their problems or their challenges, spiritual health or mental health or something going on in their family or their job. And, and man, those are great moments. Those are sort of moments that pastors live for that we really get to know you and really get to hear what's going on in your life. And so I try to be very present in those occasions. I try to listen really carefully and to speak with compassion and care. And we usually share in a word of prayer. Oftentimes in those meetings, I will try to steer people toward next steps, right? Hey, what I'm hearing you saying and what I think might be helpful, would you consider meeting with a counselor? Right? We have a lot of wonderful counselors here in Paragold. Maybe a marriage counselor, if that would be helpful in your family. Or, or maybe what I'm hearing is that you're sort of lonely, you're sort of alone in your life and in your world. Would you consider getting more involved at church? We have wonderful Sunday school classes. We have some groups that meet during the week on Wednesday night. We have groups that work at the Woodhouse. Could I help get you plugged into one of those? And that might help you a little bit, might support you. There are other things that come up, right? Like would you, would you consider me more involved in, in terms of your own health, right? Would you make decisions? Would you talk to someone about about the sort of care, the sort of recovery that you need. Maybe a social worker could help point you in the right direction. And I can tell you, just from my limited pastoral experience, that, that people very rarely follow through with those suggested 
next steps. And so I can hear Jesus asking, do you want to be made well? Here in this season of Lent, right, we are inviting God's Spirit to be among us in a particular way, searching our souls, looking at the shadowy places within our own spirit. And, and my sense is John chapter 5, this story, this question that Jesus asks is, is, is not such an obvious question. Or if it is an obvious question, it's, it's a question that still deserves a little bit more attention and reflection. Oftentimes, we're, we're kind of waiting on this super magical miracle thing to happen, right? We want God to intercede in a miraculous way when instead the, the opportunities for healing and wholeness, the next steps are already right there in front of us. Sometimes God's healing comes through surprisingly mundane ways, right? Have you talked to someone else? Have you confessed? Have you told the truth? Have you taken steps toward reconciliation and repairing your relationships? Have you gotten more involved at church? Have you come to a class? Have you been active with us here? I'm not really sure what it is in us that allows us sometimes to sort of get things together and to overcome the challenges in our life and sometimes not so much. I don't know why sometimes that clicks in our brain and other times it doesn't. But for me this week and this morning, it's, it's changing a little bit the way I'm thinking about healing and even the way I'm thinking about prayer. That maybe for those who stand in need, maybe even myself, the, the prayer isn't, oh God, do something miraculous. Maybe the prayer is, oh God, give us the courage. Give us the vision. Give us the hope to believe that we can be made well. Oh God, give us the steps. Give us the strength to follow you in this path of healing and wholeness. I challenge you today as we worship, as we prepare for our final song, as we go forth this week, to spend a little bit of time with this question. To imagine Jesus asking you this question. Do you want to be made well? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. O oh God, in this Lenten season, we are reminded of our brokenness and our shortcomings. We are reminded that we do not often see ourselves as we truly are. And that we need your help. Not only in healing and wholeness, but in taking those next steps to receiving the good gifts and graces around us. So God, give us strength and give us courage that as we sit under this question today, do we want to be made well, that we, that we, might, resound, that we might respond together with a resounding yes. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about First United Methodist Church by going to our website at www.fumcparacle.org. May God bless you this week.